welcome to dollars and cents with a couple of gents making money moves with the finest of gents come and fill up a seat cause we're proud to present how to make some good decisions when you're on the fence robert steve gonna tell you how to do it the best hello and welcome to another much anticipated episode of dollars and cents with a couple of gents my name is Stephen ellis i'm robert wolfson and we are the gents well, Steve, I don't know about you, but my inbox has been flooded over the past couple of weeks, just people wondering why we haven't released an episode recently. Yeah, that's just you, Rob. I haven't got anything. <laughs> well, just proves the point that I'm the more popular judge. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, we know you've all missed us out there, uh, you know, both of us just taking a bit of time, enjoying some summer, which feels like it's, it's ending really quickly. It's flying by, but the weather's been amazing. I can't remember. I'm a born and raised Calgarian, so I can't remember... Uh, such consistency in our weather over the summer and yeah. with very little rain which usually you have a hot day but you get the late afternoon thunder shower or hailstorm that rolls through we just haven't had any precipitation at all it seems like absolutely yeah normally i wouldn't wish for rain but i think we need a bit and obviously they need some with the, the fires that yeah. are they're raging out yeah. there especially in bc absolutely yeah so with summer winding down we thought we'd try and find a, a topic that relates to just that time of year which is going back to school yeah, and I just sent my son back to Kingston for his third year at Queen's uh, University. So it made us think, what are the tips that we need to help people prepare uh, for paying for their post-secondary education? So we thought about going through RESPs or Registered Education Savings Plans. Yeah, Rob, a really useful tool in, in helping kids or grandkids pay for their education. And so we'll talk about some of the, the benefits of the RESPs in particular. There are other ways at funding education, obviously, but we'll talk specifically about RESPs. So Rob, why don't you start with a little bit of a background on, on RESPs? How did they start? And maybe some basic features of an RESP, just to get us kicked off. So Steve, education saving plans, or RESPs, really started back in the mid-70s, around 1974, but they weren't as widely used, and even throughout the 1980s, subscribers or the contributors to the RESPs had the option of making lump sum contributions as opposed to having uh, the contribution amount restricted to a yearly maximum. So all that meant Steve was that the plans could reach the, life, the lifetime maximum in a few years and have many years after that to grow tax-free. And I'm sure CRA didn't love, love that option, Rob. Yeah, you're exactly right Steve. So the government eventually eliminated that lump sum option but since then, the yearly limit dropped to as low as $1,500 until about 1998, where two things happened which made uh, the education savings plans more popular and easier to use. The first was they raised the annual maximum to $4,000 per year, and also the lifetime maximum from $42,000 to $50,000. That was done later, though, I believe, Rob, yeah, 2017. So it was yeah, raised to, to $42,000 in and then raised again in 2007. Yeah, you're right, Steve, exactly. But the other main thing too, which was really popular among contributors, was the invention of the Canadian Education Savings Grant, or CESG is the acronym that we use. And that's basically the government matching the first 20% of contributions up to $2,000, so which was $400 a year. And that was further raised uh, in 2007 to 20% of your first $2,500 of contribution or $500 per beneficiary in the plan. Right, so when we look at RESPs now, what we see today really uh, came about after 1998. Uh, I was going to say too, Rob, one of the, the questions we often get about RESPs is what's the benefit of contributing to an RESP 
as opposed to other methods of saving um, in trust accounts for kids, for example, is another option. And, and the CSG really is sort of top of that list, right? That extra potentially $500 a year towards savings uh, really makes a difference when you start to add that up, compound it, et cetera. It's basically free money from the government. As long as your child does attend post-secondary education, it is that incentive to encourage parents to save for your children and the government to ensure that uh, the next generation are attending post-secondary education. And before you send us an email or something to that effect about nothing being free, we understand that. Yeah, there are restrictions on how <laughs> the money comes out. So yeah, it's not uh, completely free, but it is basically a built-in 20% rate of return on the money that you put in. Yeah. So Steve, just a quick note about contributions and how much you can contribute in any one year and how much uh, earns the government grant that we were just speaking about. Up to 2000, there's really two time periods. So from 1998 to 2006, you could contribute the maximum 42000 in one lump sum or after 2007 to 50000 but you would not earn the grant on all of that. You would only get a couple of years of grant. So it really is encouraged uh, to split it out over a number of years instead of just doing it all in one lump sum. So before 2007, so you could do 2000 per year and then you would get your 20% grant, which is $400 per year. And after 2007, you, as mentioned, that goes up to $2,500 or $500 per year. But the benefit is that the grant room carries forward. So if, if you happen to miss a year, you can double up in the following year and make back your back grant. But one thing to note, Steve, you can make up your grant room, but you can only do two years at a time. So there is a limit. And that CESG room may only be carried forward until the end of the year in which the beneficiary turns 17. So if you have any years in there where you didn't contribute for multiple years, two years at a time, and you have to do it before the end of the year when your kid turns 17. Now it's worth noting there are some restrictions to that based on the age of the child, but again, if there's any issues with that, uh, we can certainly discuss that on an individual basis. Yeah, there are some different rules specifically to that point, Steve, when your child is 16 or 17. And basically it just comes down to they have to have a plan open with contributions before they turn 16. That's the simplest way to think of that rule. That's right. And when it's all said and done, Steve, the lifetime maximum for the CESG or the amount of money you can earn from the government is $7,200 per beneficiary. Right, so not overly complicated, right? You know, contributions go in, grant comes in. I think where a lot of questions come is, is on the back end as well in terms of withdrawing from the RESP. So we'll maybe touch on that a little bit later. But before we do, there's a couple of different types of plans and ways to structure the RESP. So Rob, one of the other things that comes up is for people who have more than one child? Uh, do they set up individual plans or do they set up what's called a family plan? So in short, an individual plan, the subscriber can be anybody. There's no need for blood relationship, but there can only be one beneficiary. So subscriber, anyone, beneficiary, one individual. In a family plan, the subscriber can be a parent or grandparent. Uh, and you can have multiple beneficiaries as long as they're related to the subscriber by blood or adoption. And the huge benefit to that is as much as we all want our children to attend a university, a college, some sort of post-secondary education, there's no guarantee of that. So if you do have multiple beneficiaries, if you have multiple children, if one child decides not to go to post-secondary, all that money and the grant and the earnings accumulated over the years can go to the other beneficiaries within the plan. 
So another question we get is about contributing and, and not just how much but for how long. So a little bit different in terms of individual versus family plans. Contributions to a beneficiary in an individual plan can be made for up to 31 years after the plan is established. For example, if an individual plan is open in uh, 2000, the last contribution date is December 31st, 2031. Contributions to a beneficiary in a family plan may only be made until the date the, the beneficiary turns 31. Uh, and the plan must be closed actually by December 31st of the 35th year after being opened. So for example, an RESP is opened again in uh, May of 2000, let's say, it must be terminated by December 31st, 2035. It's still a long time if you think about it. So 35 years is a long time for someone to, you know, pursue whether it's, you know, dual degrees or if they want to take time off or whatever. Absolutely. If there's a long uh, if a program that takes multiple years, there's a long time to use up that money in the plan. Yeah, we usually don't find that, that the plans are even open for that long. Yeah. Right. They're closed um, or liquidated long before that. But you do have, as Rob alluded to, quite a bit of time for children to pursue post-secondary education. So you mentioned earlier about it's a bit trickier when you're starting to take money out of the plan. So can you tell us how that works, Steve? Yeah, I think withdrawals, I'll, I'll try and touch on withdrawals and tax at the same time because I think they kind of go hand in hand. Uh, so. Before I get into you know what's needed and, and how to withdraw uh, from the accounts, I'll touch a little bit on taxation when it comes to RESPs. And one of the biggest questions we get is if the contributions are tax deductible. Uh, you know, when we think of a registered plan, we think of RSPs where the contributions are tax deductible. That is not the case with RESPs. But they do grow tax sheltered and are ultimately taxed in the hands of the beneficiary provided that they use those proceeds for school. And the benefit really to that is typically the child is not earning a, as much of an income as, as you as the contributor or subscriber would be. So it's a way of income splitting while still obviously providing uh, funds for a child's education, which is the most important thing. Right. The income splitting is secondary. Yeah, it's a bonus. Yeah. So now your child's all grown up, kind of like yours, Rob and they're going to school and so what do you need to provide to be able to then withdraw from the program? The first is proof of enrollment. So you have to be in school, has to be a qualified institution uh, and so there are some requirements and again we can get into more details on those things on an individual basis. Uh, one of the questions we do get however is can it be part-time and the answer is yes it can be part-time. Yeah, and just a quick comment on the proof of enrollment. All of the registrar's office are quite familiar now with uh, RESP plans and what the government requires. So they basically have a standard form letter which has all the required information in that letter that the government needs to see. So the next thing we often pay attention to when we're withdrawing is where does the money come from? Is it coming from the contribution or is it coming as a part of the grant? And it's taxed differently whether it's part of the contribution amount or whether it's part of the, the grant, which then becomes called the Education Assistance Payment, or EAP. Another difference between those two types of withdrawals are the limits. So the uh, contributions that you've made 
there is no limit on how much can be withdrawn at a time, whereas with the education assistant payment, there are limitations in terms of how much can be withdrawn. The limitation really is only in the first 13 weeks of school or the first semester, and that amount is 5000 that can be withdrawn from the EAP or 2500 for part-time students. Uh, after that, there's no limit up to the annual EAP threshold. In 2021, the annual EAP threshold limit is is about 24,676. About. About. I guess I guess that's pretty specific. Um, if if more than that's required, then uh, withdrawals have to be made from the uh, the contribution amount, which is the post-secondary education payment or the PSE. PSE. And really, they're very similar. It's just whether or not one's coming from the grantor earnings, which is the EAP, or if it's just coming from capital, then it's the PSE. Yeah, and I think where you withdraw it from uh, would depend on your child's tax situation. If they're working a lot uh, and spreading it out, again, just for tax purposes to keep them in the lowest tax bracket possible. Yeah, as you alluded to earlier, Steve, if, if uh, because if the EAP is taxable to the beneficiary, if they're not working a lot, it's okay, but if they are, then you want it to be from the capital, which is the PSE. Right. Now, Rob, let, let's end with another real common question we get, which is what happens if your child doesn't pursue post-secondary education? What happens to the RASP at that point? Of course, Steve, we hope that doesn't happen, but it is a possibility. We can't predict the future. So if your child does not attend post-secondary, the government will retract all of that government grant if the RASP is collapsed. As previously mentioned, your contribution can be withdrawn tax-free from the RASP, but what remains is all of the investment income, or what they call accumulated income payment, or AIP. Tons of acronyms uh, yeah. with, with RESP, Steve. What you can do, though, is you can simply withdraw that AAP, and it will be taxed at your marginal rate, plus a 20% penalty, which is basically paying back the grant, and you can move it into your RSP, or a spousal RSP, providing that you do have the room. It basic, basically becomes an RSP contribution and allows you to keep a bit of the growth, essentially. Right, yeah, so you have to give back the grant, but of course it's been invested for a number of years, so they do allow you to keep that growth, which is why it's termed an accumulated income payment. If you do have two different family plans, or individual plans, as opposed to a family plan, you can also just transfer it to your other child's plan as well. And in the family plan, you can actually just designate another beneficiary. Right. So Rob, as you mentioned, you know that's not something uh, any any parent or contributor to an RESP necessarily wants to have happen. But even worse than that, what happens if a contributor or subscriber passes away? Yeah, again, we hope that this doesn't happen, but it can. And this is common when grandparents open RESPs for their for their grandchildren, as uh, we know that all grandparents love to spoil their grandchildren. So this is a great way to help uh, help them out. So a subscriber can provide in their will. Uh, or in their estate to continue the RESP, which would allow the beneficiary to receive the payments from the plan while attending post-secondary education. Uh, they can also name another individual as an alternate subscriber. The alternate subscriber then takes on the responsibility for the plan and can, na can name new beneficiaries. But the one difference with an alternate subscriber is that at the end of the plan, they cannot roll that accumulated income into the RSP and must be taken as cash payment tax at their marginal rate plus that 20% surtax. Right, so a bit of a downside there obviously. So uh, for obvious reasons we don't want to see that happen but for tax reasons we also don't want to see that happen. Right. So Rob, let's wrap up with one of the 
other questions that we get, which is how can an RESP be invested? Well, similar to your RSP analogy earlier, Steve, it can be invested very similarly. So we have uh, the ability to really tailor that investment to your individual risk tolerance and time horizon. There are, which means we can buy stocks, we can buy bonds, GICs, mutual funds, um, you know, so really a full range of opportunities. Uh, there's two schools of thought. There's some people that uh, know that they're receiving that CESG, that bonus 20%, and so it's already basically a 20% rate of return, providing your child goes to school. So let's just be conservative and know that we have a guaranteed rate of return from the government grant, so let's just keep it safe. But there's another school of thought, especially if you start when your child is really young, knowing that you have you know, up to 18, 19 years uh, as a time horizon, so maybe we'll be a bit more medium risk and try to get some growth on that as well too. Right, so lots of options out there in terms of investing in the RESP, uh, not a lot of limitations really at the end of the day, uh, just comes down to what's going to work for, for you as an individual and certainly something again to discuss with your advisor when that, when that time comes. So Rob, now that we've, we've made the listeners out there depressed that summer's coming to an end uh, with, this, with this topic and this podcast today, yeah. there are still a few weeks left. Right? What do we have? Yeah. Three weeks of summer left? Three weeks of summer. Well, technically like five, but three weeks wow. until kids go back to school. Yeah, exactly. Which feels like the end of summer, I guess. Although, you know, when the kids go back to school, it's a little bit of a holiday in itself, right? <laughs> that is true. A few weeks of summer left where the kids are yeah. off at school all day. I don't know about you, but I love my kids, but I also love when they go back to school. Yeah, I think that's true. So I think that's true that I love when they go back to school. I definitely know it's true that I love my kids. And we also made our listeners depressed because in about uh, four weeks' time, you're going to be getting that bill in your mail from your school as well, saying that we have this time to pay tuition. It's a bit depressing. I think we've talked about all the time about all those September bills, whether it's sporting activities or, or whatnot that come about. And for whatever reason, September is always a, a big bill month. Yeah, my kids don't have the school bills yet, but uh, soon enough, soon enough. So listeners out there, enjoy the rest of summer whether you see it as being the next few weeks before the kids go back to school or the full five weeks, if you have kids, of course. Of course, and also good luck school shopping. That's, that'll be really, the malls will be really busy the next couple of weeks, Staples, uh, the clothing stores, etc. Absolutely, and shirts. And Backpacks, back, binders, yeah, pencils, exactly. all that stuff. And hopefully your kids are back in school, in person learning as well. Yeah, exactly. To be honest, I, I know mine are going back. I just don't know exactly what the, the mask mandate will be and all that yet. So I guess we'll find that out in the next few weeks. It will be interesting for sure. So as always, thanks again for listening. And uh, as always, I am Stephen Ellis. And I'm Robert Wolfson. And we are a couple of gents. And we'll talk to you again soon.